and welcome to this episode of the Views from the Bath podcast. We, we've taken a bit of a week off, but we're back at it this week with your three favourite PhD students, Ed, Edmund and David. So, another sort of standard episode for this week. We're going to be going through some interesting points in the news and support for us. Ed, before we do that, Ed, you say you've been doing some exciting stuff this week. Uh, so what's been your exciting development this week? This week, I have finally managed to get my API written and working for our AI challenge. I can now write API requests and put data into my database, and it's all hosted on Google App Engine, and it makes me very happy that it all works, because I haven't written Django stuff in probably about a year now, so I was very rusty. Was it like riding a bike? (laughs) It was once I realised that the last time I wrote an API, I did it in Django rather than Flask. I had written the majority of an API in Flask and was really wondering why it was taking so long to debug and actually get working. And then I realised, oh, I haven't actually used this before and rewrote it all in Django. And now it works perfectly. So it's all good. So for the uninitiated, what's an API? Why does one use one? So an API is an application programming interface. So it's basically a little app that can be the go-between between loads of different data sources. So the way I use it is to write data from my local machine via the internet uh, with something that's known as a push request. And that inputs data into a SQL database that's hosted in the cloud. So this all runs on Google's cloud servers. You probably want to avoid writing straight to the database without an API because you can get lots of permission issues. And using an API, generally, push and get requests are handled in JSON format, which is a nice and easy-to-read format for, for everyone to understand rather than having to learn SQL commands. It's just a nice way of integrating a load of different sources of data into a central repository, uh, and it all communicates really nicely. Now we've got sort of a platform that we can write data from our little Arduino-based hardware platform. That will write it to at the moment to a computer, and the computer will send a push request to the API, which will then tell the database to store the data and we can start running algorithms on the data that we collect. So that, that's why it was a, a major milestone in our group project, because we've got everything in place where we can sort of start to play with the actual raw data that we're collecting. That's good. It's your little go-between go middleman for the project. Yeah, from what I understand about APIs, yeah, that they're a way of standardising communication between things that Otherwise, it would require very specific knowledge of, for instance, the, the sort of database backends and other aspects of the whole network stack um, by having just HTTP endpoints, which you can send data to and receive data from. It means that different groups can work on something without having to have specific knowledge of what the other person's doing. It allows that common interface, which is why... Basically, every social media uh, website, well, just about every website you visit will have an API backend which deals with data handling and presenting of information to you. So things like Facebook, Google, and Twitter and all the rest all, all use APIs for that reason. Yeah, my understanding a lot of the time is that companies and and other organisations like to produce APIs if they have situations where they might want members of the public or other organisations to to use their databases or similar because it allows them to to request and send data to those to to those databases in a way that doesn't allow them to see all of that database where sort of standard SQL or database querying you would have to know a lot more about the databases which could have security and anonymity and potentially other issues. Mm. And it's actually a large source of revenue because once you've built an API, you can also build in pricing systems into it for the number of requests that you're making to the API, which is actually how the whole back end of cloud infrastructure works. It's just a load of APIs with a pricing structure behind it that when you're writing these commands it 
goes and gets the Azure API and, and interacts with it that way. Whereas Twitter runs an API that you have to pay for. And lots of companies that are wanting to do population surveys and advertising companies pay lots and lots of money to get up-to-date data from the Twitter API, which allows you to search through tweets, look at the demographic of who's tweeting. And, and so that's where the start of what people, many people refer to as data brokers come from. A lot of them will harvest this data and transform it. And so it's really the, the gears of how the, the whole data community works. It leads quite nicely into into the first news story we kind of we wanted to talk about with with databasing and these sorts of requests. And the first news story we wanted to talk about was a major fire in the OVH data center. It was a hugely a huge data center uh, near Strasbourg that was run by OVH. It's it's an interesting case in that. This is a fairly modern new data center with good fire suppression, but it was allowed people to, to host servers and manage them themselves. And it brings to me brings up for me the question of should we or should companies be be letting the individuals or people who buy server space manage them themselves if if there are issues potentially like this, or should there be a bit more oversight? And the other side of it, it also took down huge swathes of fairly significant. Uh, internet infrastructure and maybe shows quite how vulnerable parts of the internet and parts of our daily lives are to single points of failure like huge server farms. Yeah, if you give the user complete freedom of what they want to do with the hardware, then you're obviously leaving it up to them to manage things like the load on the CPU and the load on all the other components. And this is something that we touched on two weeks ago in terms of cryptocurrency mining takes a huge amount of power and mm. at the end of the day that power has to be turned into heat that, that's how entropy works so yeah if you if you have people running servers at full load 100% of the time then you're suddenly eating into your margin for the amount of heat produced and the amount of energy produced by a given slot in a rack and it just means that things like this are more likely to happen. I mean, this is speculation, but that, that is if the cause of this fire was one of the servers themselves, or, or it could have been a failure in one of the cooling systems, perhaps, um, which would have led to uh, yeah, all of that heat being generated and not being able to be taken away, meaning that, yeah, yeah that's, how, that's how a fire has started. So... I think it's too soon to know exactly what caused the fire, but having such a high density of processing power where, at the end of the day, all of that power ha gets turned into heat in its final form means that fire is always a risk in these sort of data centres. I mean, the significance on the internet is huge. The figures being said at the moment is that the initial disturbance took down 3.6 million websites on 400, it's over 450,000 distinct domains which for one building or but four halls in one building going up is a huge impact and for, for context these are like this this is lots of websites i mean it even affected the uk government with the vehicle certification agency's website went down welsh government's export hub went down there's a I think there's some there may be for some people being some idea that that website that governments wouldn't use this sort of thing they'd use some some of their own servers but no of course this infrastructure is it's used by everybody yeah and it, it's is this idea that at the moment it's so much cheaper to simply hire computing power from someone else that has it in a data center and that's just because of the economy of scale it's cheaper for data centers to acquire all that hardware and therefore sell it on to users rather than individuals buying their own hardware to host these websites means that yeah you have so many individuals and companies all relying on these data centers to provide a service and to provide a service 100% of the time one of the key things that's shown here is that these people that are using the data center are not doing so 
in a way that is hardened against failure in that because one data center went down all of their websites have gone down which means that they clearly have no other way of hosting it other than that single piece of hardware that single server in that data center which is generally seen as bad practice if you want something to have a very high average uptime because you want to be able to be if something fails, to be able to simply switch over to a different server somewhere else in the world and therefore allow that server to provide all of the data as transparently as possible, which is yeah, clearly not been the case. And I guess that's because these things are generally quite rare. You don't hear too often of major fires like this, meaning that people probably are lazy and see the extra expense of having another copy of their website hosted somewhere else simply been an unneeded expense yeah I, I think it's a question of cost rather than the laziness because i mean i mean the ease of doing it with these sort of large data services especially with a, a lot of the websites that went down were hosted by wordpress which is what a lot of the servers that were were caught up in the fire were dedicated to things like that and even when i was building my api I can put a different version of it on a different region of the Google managed server space. If anything goes down on the live version, it'll automatically reroute the traffic to, to another site. Uh, and there's even a really nice user interface for splitting traffic be between multiple instances of your app. So I, I, I think it is purely just a cost thing these days because if if it's working now and the the CEO or the CFO can see that the, the website's up and running and they've been told that it's in the cloud, it's often quite hard to make that logical leap that, oh, the cloud is still just a building in Strasbourg. Yeah, and I think this brings us back as well to the, the question of unmanaged versus managed in that what you were describing with your API is what you'd probably call like a, a managed cloud service in that it has all of this protection against servers going down and the, the ability to host on multiple different locations all baked into the service that you're being given. Whereas maybe, from what I understand, because a lot of the, or if not all of the servers in this building were unmanaged, it means that that company still has to go in and build their infrastructure and therefore they probably can't create something at the level of, for instance, the Google Cloud Service or AWS, which is the Amazon Web Service. Yeah. And it might have been cheaper for them initially, but it simply, you, don't have, you can't factor in the cost of having this significant downtime and the loss of data. That's something that's very difficult to account for when you're initially setting something up. And it's why yeah. it's, <laughs> AWS is so popular because it allow, it has all of this built in. And yes, it might be more expensive and it might incur a few more costs, but it's the same way as having insurance for your car. You, you don't buy insurance for the times when you're not crashing the car or nothing breaks down. You, you buy it for the times when it does. Yeah, de definitely. Uh, and uh, I mean, if you've built a whole business on web services and maybe you've got a, a shopping website that you the, your entire revenue stream is from. I mean, with, with a, a managed service that you might have said, "Oh, I just want it in this one region," and that they they'll often guarantee that you can recover your data from a single region and redeploy it somewhere else. But if you've got that in one of these servers in Strasbourg and you, you've been working on a shoestring budget and not not actually kept a copy of the workings of the, of the website anywhere else you you have to build that from scratch again it, it's it's not like it's going to be uh, anywhere else so I, I i mean hopefully the there'll be a massive uptick in data recovery companies at the at the moment and i bet they're all licking their lips currently well it's always a reminder back up your data people exactly and and the the idea of the three two one system for backing up is really important here in that you should always have three copies locally one that you're changing and two 
that are copies that are backups and then one which is just completely off-site as well which means that if for instance <laughs> the building that or the office that you're working in goes up in flames and you lose all your data there you still have that off-site backup and that adds that real hard level of redundancy which is when you're doing things which are production level and are important to companies or even in our cases in key to the research that we're doing having such backups is probably the difference between having almost no downtime and losing years worth of work so it's important for everyone to do regardless of whether you're a company a researcher or even just an individual anything critical should be backed up in a next kind of news thing we want to discuss was is also it feels like we're talking about a week of failures or a week of of things going wrong and catching on fire because the next one we'll talk about is is spacex and the starship or is that a little bit unkind i think that's a bit unkind because the latest one did i I mean you could argue it's the first starship to actually refly because it did manage to touch down for five for about five minutes um, before it it took off again, so I'd I'd label that a tremendous success. But I think D- David might be able to elaborate more on how it got to that stage in the first place. Yeah, so this was Starship Ten, which was trying to recreate what had happened with the previous two tests of Starship Eight and Starship Nine, in that it would um, launch from its launch pad using three engines go up to an altitude of approximately 10 kilometres and then fall down through this belly flop manoeuvre where it's falling horizontally so as to maximise the aerodynamic drag and therefore reduce the terminal velocity before doing a manoeuvre where it relights, in this case, all three of the engines and then switches off first one and then two so therefore it can land on just a single engine in the vertical position and... In the case of Starship 10, we got almost perfectly for the whole operation in that the ascent worked as it should and as did the belly flop manoeuvre. All three engines lit again. The first one and the second went out very quickly in rapid succession, which was possibly quicker than intended. And then the final one had slightly reduced thrust but was still had enough power in the engine to slow the rocket down and land it in a way that it was intact when it still when it landed however it was perhaps a slightly harder landing than was intended for the rocket so then after five minutes something gave way in one of the tanks at the bottom of the rocket and the full the whole thing went up in about in a ball of flames and about 30 meters in the air before coming crashing back down again This was almost certainly due to some damage that was incurred when it initially landed because it was travelling faster than it should have been and the landing legs simply weren't able to absorb all of the shock of that landing, meaning that some of that force had to be taken in the structure of the rocket itself. Something, Something must have given way, causing a leak, which then caused the whole thing to explode. It's definitely... It's something similar to what we've we've I think we've talked about a little bit before in that it's it's shows the culture in in SpaceX to to publicize failures and I call failures in in inverted commas because I I mean them in terms of engineering failures so the something breaking is an engineering failure and showing that and taking time and effort and resource to properly understand those failures because this one of the big understandings from this test was to understand how Starship 8 and 9 failed with with issues with relighting boosters for landing and understanding ways to mitigate that and this does seem to have to show the the importance of that and the approach that SpaceX take with that and to some extent the out positive outcomes they can get and definitely we don't want the final result of this one but it comes from them deliberately putting it into a very difficult situation and trying to make sure they don't have any failures in the future. 
Yeah, I think one of the biggest pluses that have come out of this latest test is that they're going to start implementing the belly flop maneuver back into their Falcon 9 rocket because the reduced fuel burn that they're seeing with this maneuver and the accuracy that they're managing to get from it is going to enable the Falcon rockets to expend more fuel on getting a higher apogee and deploying more payload tons so it's it's a really positive outcome from the test and i for one can't wait until we start getting belly flopping falcon 9 rockets coming down which will be quite fun yeah and and so elon's already explained and they and, and i mean spacex have already discovered the issue of what caused the low thrust in the starship 10 test and that was due to helium from the small tanks that they have within the main fuel and oxygen tanks they have these small helium tanks which are there to provide pressure to the tank so that fuel and the oxygen is forced through all of the pipes and into the rocket and in the case of this starship 10 there was a leak which meant that helium was part of the flow of the oxygen and the fuel that was going into the engine, meaning that there was less space for combustion because part of it was taken up with the helium itself, meaning that there was a reduced thrust. And yeah, to be able to already explain what caused the issue in what was only about a week or so since that test happened, it just shows the level of expertise and also the amount of data that they must be collecting on each of these tests to be able to find that out straight away yeah because I, I it was always going to be a bit of an issue with the helium because it's it wasn't the intended use for how that was going to operate it's the whole system is actually designed to use something called autogenous pressurization so it heats up a little bit of the i think it's uh, of the oxygen and the methane mix and runs it through a pipe next to the actual rocket motors and then uses that high pressure gas that's expanded due to being heated up to flow up through external pipes and you can see them on the outside of starship to then go back up to the top and pressurize the tanks but that didn't work in i think starship eight and so that they moved on to helium pressurization for it so hopefully well i think the next Starship is already built and ready to go. So I think we'll be seeing another test in the very near future. And then I think they also have an almost fully stacked booster, which is the equivalent of the, the first stage for the Falcon 9, the bit that lands on the drone ship. For that Falcon, the equivalent is the booster for the Starship, which is an absolutely enormous piece of machinery that would go underneath the Starship and send it into orbit so it looks like they'll soon be doing tests with that as well which is exciting because that means that they they almost have both of the pieces i'm sure that they're still a long way off them combining the two but to have both pieces in production is a major step forward for them so keeping with with space the next news item we kind of wanted to touch on was the perseverance rover which is now in in inverted commas Mars mode. Ed, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is the start of getting Perseverance ready for its scientific experiments. So part of that process is actually sending a software update to it. I think they're overwriting some of the descent commands to the actual rover because obviously they're not needed anymore. They're not planning on taking this thing off the, the surface of, of Mars. Um, so they've used that ex- they've used the space there and sent up all of the updates for the upcoming scientific mission of Perseverance. And now they're starting to test all of the equipment. So one of the really fun things that we got out of NASA this week was some sound from Mars of the laser being fired. Uh, and you can hear a few little clicks from that as it, as it vaporizes some rocks. So that, that was really exciting because I think it's the first audio we've had back from Mars, uh, as in real audio rather than Mars quakes sped up to be, be listened to. So, so that's really exciting. 
Could, could it even be the first audio from any extraterrestrial planet? Planet, yes. We, we've had lots of audio back from the moon. It's interesting, the idea of erasing data and sending an, a software update to, to activate the, uh, the rover. My assumption would be that your, when you set that up, your weight is a concern, as always with anything you're putting up in space. And, so, and storage, you're, you want to keep as much storage as you can for scientific discoveries. So being able to get rid of the additional data that you don't really need for landing anymore is, is an interesting idea. And I think something that a long time ago wouldn't or a while ago wouldn't really have been considered yeah and i think it was also to reduce the possibility of error on descent and landing because if it had a whole nother rule set that it could randomly maybe have a bit flip and choose to decide those instructions and start trying to rover around in midair it was if they had the possibility of this doing essentially an over-the-air update which is what everyone hates about their Windows devices, it's actually uh, being risk-averse rather than being a risky manoeuvre. Potentially, but you've got to balance it, right? Because there is a possibility of not being able to do that over the air update. Because it would be very disheartening to have landed this rover and then be unable to get any experience off it because you've done the opposite of what you tell you, we've telling you to do and not having a backup. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But if you can't, if you couldn't communicate with it anyway, you're not getting any data back from it. Uh, yeah, I think it, 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 the concern I would have actually is is the situations like they have had previously with rovers landing in craters on Mars and being able to power themselves effectively and having to to have the instruction sets on to be able to move the rover to somewhere where it can get light and therefore power. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But they, they did have quite a sophisticated system for choosing a landing place, which was completely autonomous, and it was a dynamic dynamic system, which actually chose somewhere that they weren't expecting it to on descent. So they were hoping that they'd mitigated that problem at least. It's definitely a balance, and as with any sort of engineering or science decision, it's usually a bit of a compromise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the... One of the biggest things I'm looking forward to is the little helicopter that they've sent up with it. I think it's called Insight because they're currently deciding where to drive the rover and what to go and investigate. That They've got to fly this little helicopter up and scope it out. And I just think that's going to be awesome to see some aerial shots of, of, of the rover even. Oh, I'm really excited. Talking about space rocks, so... Uh, Perseverance is all about doing extraterrestrial stuff and looking at the rocks on Mars. But a lot of what uh, we learn about uh, other planets is from what is from what falls down to Earth. And back in the home county for Ed, Gloucestershire, this week we found a new meteorite after a meteorite shower. And this was found by the UK Fireball Alliance, which I think is a pretty cool name. I think we all want research as research to like be able to to create a nice group with a name like Fireball Alliance. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit more fun than CERN, isn't it? Well, I think it's it's one where they haven't done the standard approach of of look of creating a word and then trying to fit an acronym to it, which is quite nice. Because I I don't like the like of the idea of just oh we'll we'll find an acronym and then we'll. We'll make it sound cool, and I think it looks sounds pretty tacky. I thought it was really nice that uh, one of the people who's part of this alliance and who was actually out in the field finding them was uh, Dr. Sarah McCullen of Imperial, specifically the Earth Science Engineering Department, which is where I did my undergrad. So it, it was really nice to see my alma mater doing really good work. Is that something that is studied in the Earth Sciences? I guess Earth Sciences doesn't cover material that comes from outer space but is it still done in the department do you know yeah so so a huge amount of work is done in the department on space rocks and stuff that and interplanetary science so i think the year after i left they actually brought a new course in that was called planetary science to to not only look at our planet but extrasolar activity uh, and the other planets within our solar system and what one of the lecturers was actually on an episode well he wasn't on but he was the subject 
of a, a discussion on the Infinite Monkey Cage, uh, where they were discussing Matt Genge's pile of uh, space dust, which he has been looking at for, I think, something like 10 years now, looking at each individual grain of space dust individ- and, and uh, modelling it and taking 3D scans and completely describing it, uh, each individual grain of dust. So, yeah, th- there are some world-leading experts on on space dust and space rocks. It does seem like it would make sense, given that it's the most qualified department to deal with it. Yeah, and also I think that when you're looking at potential future colonies on Mars and the Moon, the geology of where you land and the, the rocks around you is going to be absolutely key in order for your survival and the order to produce materials for construction and other requirements. Yeah, there's some really cool there's some really cool work going on with that actually within Imperial looking at space rock mining, separation of minerals. Obviously, water is a really key resource when you're on extraterrestrial bodies and mining on Earth at least uses a huge amount of water for separation of minerals and every single process in the stage to getting to a usable material. And that's just not a luxury that people are going to have when they're starting to do building on other planets. So they're looking at electrochemical separation, passing very fine particles through an electric field and using their different molecular weights to to sort them. So there's some really, really interesting stuff that I'd I'd recommend anyone go and read about because it's it's next level. It's awesome. Well, the, well, the reason we're talking about all of this is the fact that one of these meteorites was found in Gloucestershire and in Winchcombe, which is not too far away from where Ed grew up. Not very far at all. So, it's, yeah, nice, nice to see Gloucestershire get on the map. And also, yeah, it, it's cool to see that these sort of things have happened in the UK and because there's always there's coverage of meteorites landing in everywhere else around the world and obviously the UK is a fairly small island compared to the whole of the earth so the chances of it landing in the UK are, are generally pretty small but yeah it's still it's still a really nice thing to happen in the UK and even better that it happens in Gloucestershire yeah and don't worry Gloucestershire Live have already made as many articles as they can about it It's time to move on to sport. A no views from the Bath Podcast would be a views from the Bath Podcast without some sport. And this week, we're going to lead slowly into Edmund as a rant about cycling brands. But we will start by commenting on possibly. I think we've all well, last year we we all discovered he was the future of of cycling really, but this year he's really cementing it in Matthew Vanderpol with a sterling performance at Le Semaine followed by a ridiculous performance then at Strada Bianca. Yeah, it was... I, I watched, I think, the last two hours of Strada Bianca and it was... They were, they were going up some of the hills. You could see the grimace on their faces and then Vanderpol just seemed to leave some of the best riders in the world in Alaphilippe, Wout van Aert just stand it make them look like they were standing still it was it was scary to watch the numbers are really amazing they're, they're ridiculous so what what was the last 50 kilometers he, he did he was well over 400k 400 watts uh, normalized power for the last 50 kilometers which is uh, for for if you put it into context for a normal human being that is that it becomes very scary and to be able to to have put out the the bursts that he did the last in his final final sprint he was putting out 900 watts for nearly half a minute which is difficult for most people or almost impossible for most people to put out for 10 seconds and 
I don't think my peak power is over a kilowatt. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think I've ever done 900 watts. But yeah, to be able to do that at the end of five hours of riding where you've averaged a huge amount where you've you've been attacking is is impressive i mean the top three all took at least a minute and a half off of the strava km for the final 20k which is impressive what van art who came in fourth was previously held the strava km for that section and he took a minute off i think he took whether he he still beat his previous best i believe yeah and i think just the caliber of rider that was in that final selection was insane you had Alaphilippe, Bernal, Pidcock, multiple Tour de France winners. Because Pogaccio was there as well, wasn't he, for a while? It was hugely impressive to have a world champion, two Tour de France winners, a multiple-time cyclocross world champion, uh, another multiple-time cyclocross world champion, Hand Google, who is who is a talented rider who just hasn't seemed to come through yet. But potentially that was a breakout ride for him. But definitely, to, it it shows how good and how interesting a race it was to be to have that as a final selection group is shows the quality of race in itself. And in my opinion, Strada Bianca is one of the best races in the entire cycling calendar. And the idea that it's this modern monument, I, I think, holds a lot of value because, as you say, it's a race where simply the best in the world were the ones that ended up making that selection and being the ones that won it which shows the caliber of rider required to win the race and that was shown in both the women's and the men's races this year what one of the things that was quite noticeable was the difference in matthew van der Poel's bike that he won it on uh, yeah, Matthew Vanderpool won it in on a modified version of his normal race bike. The reason I mentioned Le Samoyen before is that during that race, he, he finished that race with half a handlebar missing. Uh, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the drops of one of his handlebars had snapped off partway through the race, and he finished the race with holding with a hang, dangling shifter, holding one-handed, still managing to make a difference in the race and, and give his teammate a win. But after that event, Canyon went put out the word to the world a stop riding order for anybody who had that bike and that handlebar combination. This, it, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Van der Poel then riding that bike again in, in Strada Bianca, even if it was modified with a different cockpit, because I feel like it sends the wrong message to the public that... that He's, he can still ride it. And it comes on top... This, To be honest, when the uh, the new Canyon Air Road was announced, I was a very much not a fan. There were some real issues that I saw. As soon as you, I saw it, I, I had some real concerns. And this is not the first issue that Canyon is having to deal with. The, the first issue that Canyon is having to deal with is a wear within the seat post. And the seat posts are in these, canyon, these new Canyon Air Roads wears on the frame and is going to fail and and riders have been asked to stop riding the bikes for that issue as well so to have two safety critical failures on a frame is concerning uh, i also have concerns about the uh, design feature where they the handlebars have adjustable widths i think it's not a particularly good idea and given that you're having issues with other components too i think it's a bold design decision. The problem I have with the seat post is that it is such... The issue is such an awful one in that it is something that they should have been able to see. It, the engineering and the the modelling required to have seen this issue coming is is first to second year mechanical engineering undergraduate. That's the level of engineer that should have been able to see this and see there was going to be a problem. And the fact that that has gone all the way through to the production of the moulds for these bikes, which are hundreds of thousands of pounds, and then out to customers who are paying very significant figures to get these bikes is really unacceptable in my view. And it's not just Canyon. Canyon have been doing this and have been... It, it just It's a real concern, and I don't feel that we should be paying that much for frames if we if the level of engineering that's going into them is so low. 
and the the safety considerations is so low. And the other side of that being, do you trust the aerodynamic figures and the figures that are quoted for these bikes when you have engineers who are missing basic beam theory problems when they put design a bike? I don't know what what is your guys's feeling on this. Yeah, I, I mean, my personal feeling is that every, I, I mean, the the update as a canyon owner. Well, yeah, I mean, I've had my own issues with my own canyon, so. I love the bike. It's so much fun to ride, but their their quality control, even on top of their design issues, leaves something to be desired. And I, I think one of the biggest complaints a lot of people have is that the the new Canyon Air Road was in design for so long. It, I, I mean, it was a, it was a good four four or five years since the the previous version of the air road came out i mean yes they did i think a few things with the carbon layup to make it lighter through those years but it was the same mold uh, and they, they were touting this as the the next big thing in aero design and when when you're charging as much money as they are i, I mean these things are the price of a small family car a, a relatively nice small family car so i I don't think it's something that is forgivable for that price point and the amount of time that's gone into the development. It's it's just something that shouldn't be happening. As you said, Ed, it's, it's basic understanding of how, firstly, how this product's going to be used uh, and pushing uh, an, an excessive price for numbers that are relatively made up. You make a good point with the the quality control and quality assurance issues in that I don't understand how this frame can have gone through an extensive quality control procedure because doing the fatigue te- life testing that you would need to do on these frames would have brought up the, or you should be doing on these frames, would have brought up the seat post issue, surely. Because if, you're, if you are loading the seat post continually, as you would as a rider, you would show that, see that there is interference between the seat post and the frame and that there's going to be wear. That, uh, it really is concerning, especially at what you're charging. Yeah, and the price is an interesting thing because if you compare it to, say, absolute top-of-the-line group set components where you have electronic shifting, and in the case of SRAM, that communication is done wirelessly between the shifters and the derailleurs the cost of that is less than these frames cost for what is essentially yeah carbon that gets put into a mold so you look at for instance the shimano the accuracy that they build these components to and the quality that they build them with seems to be far greater than what has been done here with canyon and other frame manufacturers despite the fact that they're charging so much more for what is, yeah, just a bit of carbon at the end of the day compared to something which is so much more complex in the in the group set. Yeah, I mean, you can you look at, I mean, 105 is a good example. The Shimano are able to accurately, repeatably produce thousands and thousands of units of this group set, or even Tiagra, or even Shima, uh, Sora, down at this level for a, a very cheap and impressive price. I mean, they charge more for Duros, but it's still nowhere near what the cost of a frame is. And we've been having these issues for since carbon frames have been in coming that people have had bottom bracket creaking issues and bottom bracket failures. And that's all down to poor manufacturing quality and poor dimensional accuracy within the frames. And for manufacturers like Shimano, it must be heartbreaking to be producing quality repeatable quality and accurate parts and having to hang them onto frames that they know are costing huge amounts to above or they're charging consumers huge amounts above what the manufacturing and development costs are and without doing the due diligence really it with with design and and manufacture do do you do you think it's an issue with how much people are prepared to pay uh that much for bikes do, do you think because it is such a uh, in reality the people the, the majority of people buying these bikes are middle-aged men with relatively good jobs 
who to them maybe eleven thousand pounds on a nice bike isn't all that much money so and they're never going to push it hard enough for these issues to come up it's true and i i think it's always the market's going to drive the and their companies are going to to try and charge as much as they can for the market i think a huge amount comes from the marketing and that sort of side of things and it's interesting that canyon came in as this interrupting brand and did sit underneath the price points of many of the of the big brands for for a while i mean there's a huge amount of parallels for them and many other companies one plus is another example where they they did that undercutting they built the brand name for undercutting and showing a more reasonable price and then have inflated their prices slowly to to build up profit that's I mean that's that's a market thing that's going to happen with lots of companies. It's the it's the way they go, but I think there is a space for a bike company to come in. And the problem is either they charge what they should be charging, and it's a cheap bike and it's cheap, or they should do the engineering that they need to do, and then it is expensive. I mean, some of the most repeatable and dimensionally accurate frames are time time make a really good and they do a really interesting manufacturing method look a pretty good as well but they tend to cost more because of the actual engineering and they probably make less margin and are probably less profitable companies so so look for instance is one that where most of the manufacturing is done either in france itself or i believe morocco in northern africa which might be one of the reasons why it is so repeatable is that the yeah the 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 geography of it in that where the engineering is done and the research is done is most likely France and that's where also I'm sure the QA and at least some of the manufacturing is also done which I think makes it easier to have all this quality assurance testing and also the sort of the feedback time and the development cycle time is much less compared to if you're having your frame manufactured say in Taiwan if you you send out an order you get it made and then have it shipped all the way to for instance Germany in the the, uh, example of Canyon that's going to be months in in terms of a development cycle meaning that the number of iterations and prototypes that you can have will be far less than if you're able to do that carbon layup and create the moulds and the frames either in your factory or at least in the same country as where you're doing the research and development yeah I think another another issue that's causing this is a push for innovation in that we have kind of got to a stagnation point where a lot of the the highest end bikes all look pretty similar and they all do pretty similar things and they've come to as you kind of expect they've come to a happy medium of this is what works this is what's good and so brands are trying to justify higher prices by doing innovative things and so let's be fair this canyon has some innovative things but to be honest with me, for me, the majority of them are steps backwards. They're steps backwards to much harder to do with more proprietary tools, so you have to do more service with them. You have to do more service with the Canyon dealer, or they are things that are going back to old quill stems, style stems, which was, we got rid of them for a reason. And it's, I mean, Cervelo are just as guilty. They, the new S5 has a almost fundamental flaw, which is kind of meaning that a lot of them are going damaged by if you move the bars to the side to side. But that's just part of another make a really innovative design so we can justify the price point. Yeah. I, I also think it's sort of em- embarrassing for Canyon that they've had an issue on their single best sponsored athletes bike because that they have the opportunity to look at everything that they're giving him and give it a extra level of quality assurance and testing that they might not be giving to general consumers well there's always been the the argument that the pros are diff- get a different carbon layup gets different carbon fiber sometimes and i think it's kind of happens nowadays but i don't know that it happens as much but you'd have thought if you were giving a bike to a Vanderpol who is who is your face of your brand at the moment you'd give it give him the one that you nature was right which is why it's so concerning because if it's happening on his bike you can sure as hell hope you think it's going to happen on somebody else's especially yeah. as as we 
talked about in when we discussed Strada Bianca, the, the amount of power that he's putting through that bike and the amount of stresses that are going on in that bike will be one of those sort of edge cases which the bike should be able to deal with. So it's even worse. It was almost lucky that it happened to Lussemann because he was acting in a support role there for, for his teammate. But he, he could have quite easily gone for the sprint himself. Uh, and had, had he had a failure on his handlebar then, Canyon would be looking at a possible huge lawsuit for, for destroying the career of uh, one of the most successful bike riders of all time. I, I, I think it could have gone even worse for them than it has. Yeah. And it's, uh, some, it, I mean, the issues with this frame are stuff that a junior engineer really should pick up. Pick up. But we could go on with this for a while. One of the things I've been excited to watch, not live, because I'm not a masochist and don't stay up until, I think it, it starts at three or four in the morning, and I definitely don't get up that early, is the America's Cup, which is finally here. We've had the finals of the Prada Cup series, uh, which Luna Rossa Prada Pirelli won, and we're, we're given the right to challenge for the for the actual America's Cup. And it's a, turning out the actual racing is a lot closer that, than was planned. I think they've had six races so far, and it's three all at the moment. It's all been about the pre-start so far, so... Before the start of each race, there's a certain area in which the boats are allowed to stay within and they're allowed to enter this box, I think, two minutes ten before the start of the race. And then they have to stay within the box and they do a whole load of tactical manoeuvres. And whoever's been over the start line first for the past six races has gone on to, to win the race. So it's... It's been really exciting to watch those pre-starts, but we haven't seen as many lead changes as we did in the Prada Cup series. It's interesting. You said in the intro to this that the racing has been uh, closer than planned. I think you mean planned by by the New Zealand boat because this coming into it, I think their perception within from most people was that New Zealand would probably walk it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you think that that's because of the conditions that have been? on the water in the last few days because generally speaking they've been at just about the lowest wind speed that the boats are able to race at and sort of eight to ten knots where maneuverability and having the larger foils which are in the case of the Luna Rossa boat they have meaning that they're able to operate at these lower speeds has maybe meant that it's closer than say if the wind speed was up at nearer 20 knots where you're looking at more of an absolute boat speed race rather than this sort of uh, manoeuvrability and more tactical racing, do you think that there might be where, if in future days we have days like that, we might see a, a different kind of race and one that might be more as we were expecting from the Team New Zealand boat? Yeah, I definitely think that if it had been windier, Team New Zealand would have gone so much faster than Luna Rossa because even with the low the low wind speeds, they've managed to get the highest boat speed out of either of the boats every single day. And back in when Emirates Team New Zealand were just testing by themselves, they had the quickest boat speed by far. And I think they need that little bit more wind to for that to work with their small foils, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the luck of the draw, uh, and you can't always get the weather you want. And it, 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 they've been given this weather window to work within, uh, and so I, I don't think it's unfair. I think it, it may even be good forecasting and good prior planning from Luna Rossa to go for these larger foils. I mean, I think it was something we discussed around the, the final of the Prada Cup as well in that that was lower wind conditions than we'd seen earlier in the in the Prada Cup series where it team Ineos had been performing better than they were during the final where I think they they seem particularly sensitive to wind speed and we think this is probably the similar case again with Team New Zealand. 
Yeah, but w- with the difference here being that Team New Zealand can still put a g- put up a good fight and remain level at low wind speeds, ra- rather than just completely failing. Yeah, and uh, regardless, it means that we're able to see more of these races. That the fact that it's now when we're recording this three all means that we're guaranteed uh, at least another two days of racing, whereas it could have all been over by tomorrow in the case of if it was just a complete whitewash by one of the boats. So, yeah, even though most of the races, well, you you could call it dull because there's no lead changes, the fact that we're seeing this close race racing and the fact that when you, before the start, you don't know who's going to win just means that, that yeah, there's there's an added interest in watching these races. Whereas I think, yeah, if it was if it was currently 6-0 to one of the boats, I probably wouldn't be tuning in tomorrow morning to see the highlights because, yeah, I think I'd know what was going to be the result. Yeah, it, it may be frustrating for both of the teams, but it's a definite win for the fans. And I think in many ways, that's what... I, I think even if Emirates Team New Zealand lose they'll have actually scored a big win for the for the class because so many people were criticising their choices in the years running up to this. And I think they, they've managed to put on one of the best um, America's Cup events we've ever had. Uh, and, and so even if they lose, I think in many ways they've won. Uh, unless Luna Rossa is the challenger of record who've, who've said that they don't particularly like the class completely change it all for the next time so we'll, we'll see we'll see we'll see i mean so with 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 the scores at three all what are your what are your picks what's your prediction i'd have to look at the weather forecast yeah yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll let david go first and base base mine off that okay i, I think that if, if it continues in these conditions where it, it's simply it is very evenly matched it's all about the start I, I think we could see it being 7-6 or 7-5 in possibly either direction because it's so down to the skippers on these boats and the positioning within that pre-start and there's so little room for error and such a high chance of error in that pre-start that yeah it's, it's taken out of the hands of the boat it, and the speed of the boat and more into the sailors themselves at which point there's probably very little to choose between the two of them so I, I think if it stays like this maybe a 7-6 to New Zealand if the wind speed gets up and we're starting to see more boat speed races uh, maybe a, a 7-4 to New Zealand 7-4 to New Zealand uh, I'm going to go 7-5 New Zealand and pr- probably I'll be proved right by the time this goes out. So, well, well, well done, true. well done, Team New Zealand. Yeah, and I will stick with what I originally predicted at the start of the championship, which was seven four New Zealand. But uh, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it's if Luna Rossa wins. To be honest, if it's in these conditions where the boats seem so evenly matched, their experience in these pre-starts by the fact that they've been racing against Ineos and American Magic for the last month or so is certainly going to be able to count as a positive towards them and could be what decides the America's Cup itself. It's very possible. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. It's been it's been a good to to get back to it this week. Something I'd like to say it's been I we took a week off and I think a lot of people and uh, a lot of families over the last year have, have lost some people and I had experienced that a little bit and we we lost my, my uncle who is who is a huge sports fan of, of all kinds of sports and I, I feel a lot about that and one of the, the big things that that he he loved was park run and running and, and being active and keeping active and on Davis funeral that a lot of his friends who took part in park run did a 5k for him and it's and it's something I think that would be really nice to to keep going so if anybody wanted to doing a 5k would be it'd be it's a good good way of keep, of clearing the mind and keeping active is is really important I think another thing I'd like to say is keep an eye out for the people around you look out for the people around you 
it's been a hard year and and checking people okay is is really important so thank you very much for good, for listening to this episode of the useful in bath podcast if you want to have a chat to us the best way to do that is at the bftv underscore pod uh, instagram have a lovely evening and good night